0: Hello, and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast two hundred and sixty one. My name is Jerry Frost. And this time around, we're doing a romantic movie and a movie that's the opposite of a romantic movie. To start off, we're going to 1960 for It Started in Naples, starring Clark Gable and Sophia Loren. And then we move just a dozen years ahead to 1972 for Payday, starring Rip Torn two very, very different movies, and I'm not even sure why I'm putting them on the same podcast. Anyway, sit back, relax, and we'll get the show started after I give you the contact details. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciation. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and that's a rule I break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. feedback is very important to the podcast so you can offer it a couple of ways you can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com you can go to the paleocinema cafe on facebook and also or you can send me an owl if you went to hogwarts you can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema and donating as little as one dollar us per month Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. Okay, so how's everybody been? It's got warmer here, which is pretty terrific, which is why I played Henry Mancini's Lujon at the start of the show, which is my ideal warm weather, sitting around with a cocktail kind of music. Ah, yeah, so it's about time it happened too. It's going to fade away for a couple of days because the way we get warmer weather around this part of the planet is that it gets warm really fast, then it gets cold, then it gets warm, then it gets a little less cold, then it gets warmer, then it gets a little less cold, then it gets warmer, and eventually it's warm. But yeah, so I'm kind of looking forward to summer, I'm really over this winter. Uh, It really did drag my ass just a little bit. So um, what have I been doing? I've been doing a few things. I did a, a few of the YouTube videos, which have been going along nicely. I can always use more subscribers. So if you're interested in subscribing to the channel, very happy for you to do so last couple I did was, I did one about Suspiria, which I could never watch before. I um, Well, you'd have to watch the video to, for me, to understand the story. And I also did one of my 13 Halloween movie picks, which is a kind of an eclectic little grouping. Some are fairly obvious, some are a little obscure. But one way or the other, I thought I'd do a bit of a Halloween-themed piece there, and it's been fairly well-received. Uh, So I've done both of those. I did the radio as well. The radio was kind of interesting because we did the movie I last spoke of on the most recent Martian Drive-In podcast, which was Detective D, The Four Heavenly Kings by Hark-Swee. And you should see that movie. It is just balls to the wall. Totally fucking crazy. Action cinema with surprises. Two post-credit sequences. I forgot to mention that in... The podcast, but there are two post credit sequences to the most recent of the three Detective D movies that we have, and yeah, it's, it's just a lot of fun. I, what I did that with M- Rebecca McLaren from ABC Darwin, and Beck loved it. She stayed up late with her husband, and they both had to watch it to the end, and got a short night's sleep because they were up at like after midnight, just grooving on all this whoosh action. And just had a terrific time with it. So it's always nice when you're doing this kind of gig where you bring a movie to the radio and talk about it with the presenter when you can bring something that delights them. Sometimes you bring things and they go, yeah, I didn't like that for this reason. And then I try to convince them otherwise. But uh, this one Beck really liked and it's always a bit of fun when that happens. I also read a book too. Now, most of the book reading I do these days is on my Kindle. But this one actually got a Dead Tree edition of it's a, movie, it's a book, sorry, from twenty twelve called Full Service My Adventures in Hollywood and the Secret Sex Lives of the Stars by Scotty Bowers, who died last week. And yeah, it's um a really interesting um piece of work. Bowers was a Marine in the at the Battle of Iwo Jima, amongst other places. And after the war, he was pumping gas in Hollywood and he got picked up by Walter Pigeon and they went away for an assignation. He got paid 20 bucks and he then became well known for not only um, being a man for hire, but also hooking other people up. Uh, not pimping necessarily because he didn't get the money for it. He just kind of put people together while he was doing a business as a cocktail waiter at Hollywood parties. There's some wild and very controversial stuff in that book and it is a little challenging at times though from what I've seen of the error checking on Scotty Bower's book there's very little if any of it that's not true. And so we get this totally different view of a whole bunch of Hollywood stars not in any pejorative way but just understanding better who they were And who they had to pretend to be to be successful in Hollywood from the 1940s to the 1960s. And that's kind of interesting to me because I'm a gossip. I said I was reading it online uh, on Facebook and a couple of people have had um, some negative things to say about the book and they're kind of not really into the way that Scotty Bowers approached the subject matter. But that's okay. It's a broad church, this movie buff thing. And we can agree to disagree courteously about this, but I find it really interesting. I want to find out everything about Hollywood and, of course, about all the other places where films that I really like have been made. And so this one is a keeper for my book collection. Now, I'm sitting in front of... As I said, rearranged the man cave a bit, and so I've got the podcasting desk in front of an enormous wall of movie books which is kind of daunting. I've read most of them, which is the scariest part. But there are a few that I haven't. And um, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. that The lovely thing about being a movie buff and also about reading about movies is that you can never go too deep. There's always more stuff you don't know and more stuff you haven't seen and more stuff that becomes revealed to you over time. And that's lovely. It's, it's the deepest swimming pool in the world for your mind. So what have I been watching? Well, for the most part, I watched season five of Bosch with uh, Titus Welliver. You know, an LA-based police procedural, but with some really interesting characters. I enjoyed that. That came up on my Amazon Prime subscription, so I binged that one. The next season's not being released till next year, so I'm a bit disappointed in that, but I'll wait. Uh, and I watched a few things as well. I watched Brotherhood of the Wolf, the French movie, which has Vincent Cassell and also Mark DeCasco's in it. I'm halfway through that. It turned up on my Amazon Prime subscription, which is um, a streaming service that one of the two broad uh, public broadcasters here in Australia does. SBS On Demand is great because you can dive into it and they have cult movies. They have a lot of foreign language cinema, so you can pick up on some things you haven't seen before. They've got classic kung fu movies. They've just got a little bit of everything. Uh, If you want a romantic comedy from Belgium, I'm sure you can find one. It's just um, one of the great resources that we are lucky enough to have in this country. And it's free. It's like Tubi. Tubi's free and also SBS On Demand is like ABC iView which is the other public broadcaster their streaming service and i believe ABC iView is being unlocked from um, geo-locking in the near future so you'll be able to watch Australian ABC shows from wherever you are without using a VPN and by the way we are following the richard rule again which says that i have to start talking about the movies at the 15 minute mark of the podcast otherwise richard will be unhappy I did watch a few other things. I watched the uh, pilot episode of Watchmen, the TV series, of course, based on the graphic novel. And, yeah, I kind of like it. I think it works. It really is something interesting. And to make me happy, it's transgressive as well in uh, so many different ways. It's going to piss off all the right people. And in 2019, in any kind of medium... If you're pissing off the right people, you're doing the right thing. I'll be very interested to see where the series goes, and I'm looking forward to going on that journey as well. Um, I'm one of the people who didn't mind particularly the Watchmen movie. I think it had a few virtues. I don't think it was perfect. I don't think it was a perfect or even the best possible adaptation of the source material. But as a thing of its own, I didn't mind it that much. We've also got Season 2 of Titans happening at the moment, and I'm kind of enjoying that, though. Maybe not as much as I am some other series. I'm not sure how much further I'm going to dive into Titans. It better pick up its game just a little bit for me to retain an interest. But it's not bad. I'm looking forward to Season 2 of Doom Patrol, of course. But that's not out for just a little while yet. So until it is, I'll make do with what I've got. I think it really is a kind of bad time for going to the cinema at the moment. There's just nothing on that I really want to watch Joker came out and a few other things, but nothing that I really want to see in a cinema that I can't wait to see when it does come out either as a streaming thing or as something I can buy. So it's I'm a little sad about that, oddly enough. I want to get excited about upcoming movies a little bit more, but uh, there's just nothing that's kind of pinging in my radar. By the way, I have changed microphones. I was using the... Um, headset market but I didn't like the sound quality so i have changed back to the Rode USB NT which gives me a much better sound. Anyway I'm going to play you a song now which is in anticipation of the next Paleo Cinema podcast. The person singing this song is the star of the movie one of the movies I'm going to talk about in that podcast. I'm not even going to tell you who it is. I'm going to play this song now And you're going to have to wait two weeks to find out who the singer is, unless you shazam it on your phone or something like that. But anyway, here it is. And after that, I'll talk about the first of the two movies for the podcast. It started in Naples starring Clark Gable and Sophia Loren.
1: Something I Never knew I wished on the moon For more than I ever knew A sweeter rose A softer sky An April day That wouldn't dance Away I begged of a star To throw me a beam or two Wished on a star and asked for a dream or two I looked for every loveliness it all came true I wished on the moon
0: Still not going to tell you. Anyway, here's the trailer for It Started in Naples. And then I'll talk about why this is a weird movie, which from a 21st century viewpoint is really, really strange.
2: They say that London is a man's town. And that Paris is a
3: woman's town.
2: But the place where the sexes get together is Naples. Naples.
3: It started in Naples. Five o'clock in the morning, five o'clock, a fire time.
2: Naples, that's where all the fireworks begin in this sparkling, sizzling, heartwarming story of a hard-fisted, rich American male, a softly-curved Italian female, and their battle over a nine-year-old delinquent street urchin they each want to adopt.
3: You think I wanna be like you, Americano in a pig's eye?
0: Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are half American, you know.
3: You don't tell nobody. I don't tell nobody. I got enough trouble.
2: Clark's his uncle on his father's side. Sophia's his aunt on his mother's side. Ah, ma, too probably. Vittorio, the lucky lawyer who's always in the middle. Introducing Marietto, the cute kid who'll steal your heart and your wallet as he cooks up a big stew between his uncle, who's as American as hamburger, and the aunt, who's as spicy as pizza pie. Carina! Your baby as a picture your Carina.
3: And yet I'm just an innocent Bambina who's grown but never has known the sweetest game of love.
2: Sophia wants him to go to school.
3: Tomorrow, i get the hell out of here.
2: Clark tries to teach him baseball. And then, see what happens when Naples works its magic. And Clark and Sophia start playing games of their own. Yes, it started in Naples. And you'll never guess how far it goes. It started in Naples, the kind of a movie that surprises the world only once in a long, long time. For as you find yourself in the most beautiful place on earth, Capri, you'll get a lift on the most colorful vacation from care you've ever had. When you see It Started in Naples, you too will say it's wonderful.
0: Got to be honest with you, this movie was never ever on my radar at all. Uh the only way I found out about it was a kind of backwards way because somebody gave me in a pile of movie related novels a copy of a novelization of It Started in Naples with colorful pictures of Sophia Loren and Clark Gable walking along the waterfront in Capri and in the evening, and it's all kind of romantic and lovey-dovey. And so I thought I'd give the movie a go. Um, I'm always willing to fill gaps in my movie knowledge, and this is definitely one of those. I don't think it was a particularly successful movie, though it was very much in a crowd of romantic comedies at the time. The late 50s to early 60s was just replete with comedies. It was the peak time. Of very careful, very middle class, very America centric comedies in Hollywood. Now, this one was filmed on location, and the um, studio work was done at Cinecittà Studios in Rome, so it wasn't American in that sense, and its origins weren't American either. The story is pretty simple. Mike Hamilton, uh, Bachelor lawyer played by Clark Gable is engaged to be married to somebody you never see in America, but has to travel to Naples because his brother has died and he's got to tidy up the estate. He gets there and he finds out that his brother had a son, an eight-year-old kid who's living with his um, brother's wife's sister in capri now the kid's name is nando and the sister's name is Lucia. she's played by sophia loren so mike finds out he's got more on his plate than he thinks he has he's due to be married in a day or two he's got to fly back to philadelphia to get married and instead he's chasing across the water to the isle of capri to find out about this nephew and to try to do the right thing by the family. Now, the problem with this is, there's a couple. First one is, and this put me off a lot, Mike, the character played by Clark Gable, is racist as fuck. He is racist against the Italians. He does a wry kind of voiceover, which really doesn't endear him to a modern audience one tiny bit. He talks about how you can't drink the water. He talks about how he paid women for sex during the war. He kind of, you know but it's totally out and open about all of this stuff. And he's very dismissive of Italy being a different culture than his own. Now, this is a part of the character's arc, but it's laid on a bit heavily for us to accept it from a 21st century viewpoint. So we didn't particularly, well, I didn't particularly like the character when I was first introduced to him. Now, Sophia Loren, of course, is lucha. Is charming as hell. She's forthright, she's independent, she works in nightclubs as a singer and a dancer. And Mike assumes, based on his own limited knowledge of Italian womanhood, that she's also a sex worker. In fact, when he goes and sees her in the nightclub where she sings a really nice song I'm going to play for you in just a little bit, he kind of tells the waiter to give her half of a large denomination note and his room key, and for her to be waiting for him there. She turns that tables on him, but his assumption is that she's there, she's a basically a sex worker, which is really an interesting thing if you kind of deep dive into it. The only way that a beautiful woman who works in a nightclub can be making a living, according to this American white male, living in the, uh, in the year 1960 is if she's a sex worker because she's in a sleazy nightclub, she's wearing a skimpy costume and singing slightly suggestive songs and dancing in the nightclub. Basically, Mike is a judgmental prick. He's the kind of judgmental prick they used to call being a man of the world, but it kind of doesn't play very well right now. Um, On the other hand, Sophia Loren's character is a lot of fun. She's independent. As I said, she's feisty. She doesn't take shit from men. She lives life on her own terms. And she's looking after her eight-year-old nephew, whose father, before he died, invested all of his money in fireworks, which, you know, I can see from having spent a considerable amount of my youth letting off a lot of fireworks. I can see the virtue in spending all your money on fireworks, but that's just an excuse to give us a nice fireworks scene on the waterfront in Capri where Mike and little Nando bond over explosives, basically. (laughs) Mike has an Italian lawyer, Mario, played very stylishly by Vittorio De Sica, who's having a lot of fun with this one and shows the kind of opposite side of it. Vittorio De Sica's as much of a ladies' man as Mike is in this movie and yet he does it in such a stylish and flamboyant and non-brash way that it kind of almost borders on being acceptable, though he does kind of perv on women walking past in bikinis. Which brings me to the conclusion about this film as it's presented on the screen. This movie is a middle-aged male wish-fulfillment fantasy from 1960. Now, there's one of the other discrepancies in the film is that at the time Clark Gable was 59 years old, and Sophia Loren was 26. So there was a wide age gap for the two actors, which wasn't considered really kind of bad in those days. But in more subsequent decades, we've reevaluated it because we actually asked women what, women what they think, and. It's a little less acceptable, but the other there's some really other weird things about it as well. First off, it came at the end of Clark Gable's life. The only movie he made after this was The Misfits, and this is the last movie that Clark Gable made that was released before his death. He died of a heart attack. Now, at the time he made it started in Naples, he'd already had two heart attacks, and in spite of that, he was smoking 80 cigarettes a day, and while he was on location and while he was in Chinichita doing the studio work, he gained about 50 pounds and ended up weighing about 230. Now, I'm not going to fat judge anybody, but the weird thing is you can see it in the movie. You can see where they changed the costume because the leading man has found that he really likes pasta. And that's kind of um, the opposite of of what usually happened in movies. I mean, they did it with Mario Lanza, of course, in a lot of his later films. But for the most part, it was the female actor who you had to kind of hide either a pregnancy or her gaining a bit of weight during the course of the making of a film. But they did this with Clark Gable. And this is never as evident as in the scene they film when when the romance starts. Lucia and Mike go for a boat ride in the blue grotto in Capri. And it's um, a weird thing. You see them in shadows with the beautiful blue light from the grotto behind them. And she dives in the water and swims around, and he dives in the water and swims around. And it's pretty obvious that it's not Clark Gable doing that. And it may not even be Sophia Loren doing that. Some of it looks a little bit rotoscoped. Now, it may just be the quality of the video of this that i watched. But it's a very weird little scene where you don't see the actors themselves in a scene which is a kind of one of the clincher scenes for the developing romance between these two who are arguing over the custody of Nando. So you've got this weird situation where you've got a dying movie star and an upcoming female actor who eventually did some really good character roles in the 60s and early 70s kind of crossing paths and making this movie there is sort of a chemistry between them but it's not with the kind of intensity that a first rate rom-com will have and that kind of negative connotation or the negative um, voiceover that we get at the start from Mike really does from my viewpoint at least put us way behind the curve, admiring him as a character. I mean, there are a number of movies that do redemption arcs for kind of assholes, but his particular kind of arseholery is one that hits a cultural soft point for us in the second decade of the 21st century. Now, the rather weird thing I found out about this film, which is really kind of totally bugfuck crazy, from several different viewpoints is that this wasn't originally going to be a movie starring clark gable it was originally going to star another actor fading actor who was very famous for a long time but whose career was kind of at an end The virtue this actor I had in starring in this movie potentially was that they lived on capri and had done so for a number of years and so it was the perfect opportunity for somebody to make a movie where they could kind of work locally. Oddly enough, that wasn't an American actor we're talking about. That was Gracie Fields, um, the English music hall and movie comedian and singer. So there's a kind of really weird um, crossover here. The, the original screenplay was written by two English writers, Michael Pertwee and Jack Davis. Um, And the studio obviously had the rights to it. And when they couldn't quite get it all together to um, get Gracie Fields and get this movie up starring um, a lady in her 60s as somebody who adopts an Italian kid and falls in love with Capri and decides to stay there and all that kind of stuff. They really couldn't get that to work for them. So their natural thought was to get a rewrite from a couple of American actors and get a fading American star Clark Gable to do the lead role. Um, It's just odd for a Gracie Fields movie to end up being a Clark Gable movie. It really does strike me as passing strange that that occurred. Here's a little bit of Gracie Fields just to give you an idea of her shtick. So Gracie Fields was three years older than Clark Gable as well. By the way, that song is very popular at funerals for certain people um, of a, a certain vintage. And I know that my grandparents, my father's parents, really were big fans of Gracie Fields and George Formby and people like that because they were from the north. And the early entertainers they had in the north of England who became incredibly prominent were Gracie Fields and George Formby. So they've turned a Gracie Fields movie into a Clark Gable movie now there are some saving graces no pun intended in this movie and most of them are to do with Sophia Loren now the kid played by a kid whose nom de stage was Marietto is good he's kind of I think he may be speaking English phonetically but he kind of makes it work he's got a nice touch with the comedy he gets most of the best lines in the movie and he kind of does have a rapport with both Clark Gable and with Sophia Loren. Now, the best bits in this movie are the nightclub bits with Sophia Loren, which hark back to a movie from 1999, oddly enough, which has a very similar scene in it to one of the scenes in which Sophia Loren plays in the nightclub she works at, her character Lucia works at, in Capri. And it is this song. Now, I'm, going to, I'm playing a few songs this podcast, but it's a very kind of musical podcast in some ways. This one appeared sung by totally different people, of course, in the talented Mr. Ripley in 1999. But this is the version, not the original version, because there's a version earlier than this, but the version with Sophia Loren.
1: If you drink whiskey and soda All you do is sing up key. You dance the rock and roll You play it made the bold Those cigarettes you smoke Leave mama broke They should only make you joke You wanna be American?
2: Meghi do papa, tu vuoi vivere alla moda, ma se bevi whisky e soda, o sente disturba, tu a valoro che andrò, tu ciò che ho a me se po, ma è sorte e pecca a me, chi delida, la borsetta di mamma, tu vuoi fare l'americano, americano, americano. It's
0: Fa Americano, which is kind of cool and it gives the movie some energy, which it sorely lacks because the leading man has had two heart attacks that rhymes. Which isn't to say the movie isn't without a lot of charm. I mean it's really got some nice parts in it. There are little town squares in Capri which are full of tables and chairs in the evening. There's music playing and there are people walking around. There are thousands and thousands of women wearing Capri pants and there's lots of espresso in the movie which is always a good thing for me because I'm an espresso drinker and Kind of Another reason why I didn't like Mike too is he doesn't like to drink espresso. And he decided that he was going to get the makings for hamburgers and make hamburgers for his nephew instead of eating the food where he is. It'd be a bit like me trying to find Vegemite when we went to Japan in April. Fuck Vegemite. I'm there trying new things, not familiar things. I think that if you're traveling at all, you've got to eat what the locals eat because... There's no point in it. If you're going to eat the same food you had at home, you might as well just watch a YouTube video and snack on hamburgers. But, um, yeah, it's kind of the ugly American thing happening with this movie in a way that that the movie makers obviously weren't really aware of at the time. And the other thing that's really kind of interesting too is there's a one-sided phone conversation you see Mike having with his fiance overseas in America. And the way the character, who you never actually hear or see, who's got no agency at all in this movie, is his fiance in America is jealous and shrewish and bossy and demanding and totally not the sort of person a lifelong bachelor is likely to marry. It is really kind of a... The female roles in this one are really kind of interesting because it's basically... There are only two, and one of those is somebody you never see. So yeah, it's um, it's a weird movie from a modern viewpoint. It really does have enough glitches to make it a little bit icksome. Now the virtues, the the lovely scenery, the landscapes, the bit where there's a um, chairlift taking. Clark Gable down a hill and he reaches down off the chairlift and grabs a bunch of grapes from somebody who's harvesting grapes down below the chairlift there's, there's all these there's charming moments in this and they're mostly travelogue kind of moments Apart from Sophia Loren, who face it in film was charismatic as fuck and often badly served when she was in English language films, there's that horrible thing she did with Peter Sellers, The Millionaireess, where he plays an Indian doctor because brownface was considered acceptable in those days. It's kind of useful to look at a movie like this because it does let us see in the rearview mirror how much culture has changed and it lets us evaluate whether those changes are good or not. Now, if you're a sexist, entitled white male you may not think so you may think that things were better back when Clark Gable made this movie and it was considered acceptable for his character to be a total turd but I kind of like the fact that I can look back and go okay well hopefully a lot of that's changed I see who his character is and I see the start and you only see the very very start of a redemption arc for the character. And, you know, that's kind of a moment of hope in an otherwise bleak landscape of this guy's mind. of course, rolls into all these arguments that um, male comedians of a certain age have these days, saying, oh, well, political correctness has ruined comedy and you can't make fun of things anymore and I'm going to go fishing because I can't make a living, all this kind of shit, which is bullshit. You've got to adapt to the times. I've adapted to the times maybe eight or nine times in my life. And if you don't surf... The wave you're going to drown. And surfing the wave of cultural change is definitely the way to go. Because at the moment, with some incredibly large exceptions, that wave is heading in the right direction. Now, there are people, of course, who make counter waves. Fox News is the biggest counter wave, I suppose there is. But I like the fact that I can look back and go, okay, we're not like that anymore. And I can pick out the little good bits from an otherwise kind of icky movie and say that I like them. So, I mean, other people may have different opinions of this film. Other people may look upon it a little more kindly than I have. But the virtues in this are the landscapes, the little kids, Sophia Loren, Vittoria De Sica being stylish as fuck. And the music and the um, cabaret bits. Uh, 1960 Capri sounds like a place I'd want to go to. Because good food, sunshine, water and espresso coffee. That's pretty much all I needed. If it had Wi-Fi, it would be fucking perfect. But anyway, I'm going to leave that movie there and then I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, we're going to talk about how much culture changed in 12 years. By talking about the ripped Torn movie from 1972. Payday, starring Anna Capri as well. And I'll play the trailer for that right now. Meet Maury Dan.
2: He's a star, honey. I don't hang around Nashville waiting for Johnny Cash. He's getting along all right. She's a country girl. He wants a piece of the gate next time out. People in hell want water too. He gets the best things in life. We only passed this way once. Might as well pass by in a Cadillac. He's just a fun-loving, fast-living, freewheeling country boy. <laughs> Do you think going 95 miles an hour is funny, sir? Excuse me, sir. It is it is really all my fault. Well,
3: you're Maury Dan.
2: He likes his cars flashy.
3: My God, is that yours?
2: And his women friendly.
3: I didn't actually think I'd get to meet you. Though. I think
2: I can fix that. If he can't smoke it, drink it, spend it, or love it, forget it. He has all the friends money can buy. Rip Torn is Maury Dan, Superstar. I love you, sweet man. For Maury Dan, every day is payday.
0: Maury Dan's probably the character that Rip Torn played best in movies. Now, there's arguments that he was better in the Gary Shandling show, but in this one, I think there's a character here that could only have been played by Rip Torn. And I think that it's a classic that a lot of people don't know about. It really does have a kind of neo-realism about it. It's almost documentary at times. It's keenly observed, well-written, well-acted, and it's shot beautifully. And it is unforgettable. Now, I heard about this movie when it came out. Way back in the day before your parents were born... I heard about this movie and I wanted to see it because Anna Capri was in it and she had been in Enter the Dragon. So I thought, yeah, I want to see this movie because it's got the same chick that was in Enter the Dragon, so I want to see what this is about. And I never got to see it until a week ago. That's how it goes sometimes with movies. You have them in that little mental list you have and then, bam, suddenly you get the opportunity to see them and you do. Now, I've had the disc for a little while now. And I put it in and I watched three quarters of the movie and the fucking disc glitched. So I found an online copy and watched the rest of the movie here at the podcasting computer rather than on the big TV screen. That pissed me off and it took me out of the flow a little bit. I was really careful and I was assiduously careful not to look up anything about the movie. Because I didn't know where it was going to go ultimately. And I didn't want to know, and I'm not going to tell you in case you haven't seen the film and you do want to see it. So here's the praise of the film from IMDB. Now, the trailer would have given you a lot of it, but here's what it says. "Murray Dan, played by Rip Taunt, is a not-so-nice country and Western singer. He he ruthlessly manipulates everyone around him to suit his selfish needs, even... I'm not going to put the rest of that because it's a fucking spoiler. Ah to hell with IMDb anyway. Murray Dan and the Dandies is his band. Um, he's a middling country singer that tours around the south doing gigs, drinking alcohol, getting laid, and taking absolutely no responsibility for his actions. He drives around in a big Cadillac with cowskin seat covers, and his big burly driver, Chicago, usually gets him out of trouble. Now, Chicago in this one's an interesting character played by an actor who is still around, a guy called Cliff Emick, and his character is kind of more complex than we give him credit for at first, and I, I like that. I kind of like the way, the way they give him just that little space to occupy, and when he talks to one of the female characters, a girl called Rosamond, played by Elaine Heilweil, Heil- Heil- Heil you um, he, kind of get the idea that he's got more going on in his life than just driving this drunken cowboy singer around the south of the US. He's got his own plans and his own skills and he wants to communicate with them. And I kind of like that. I like the fact that they gave him that breathing space in here. Uh, there are a few other characters in there. There's, uh, as I said, there's Elaine Hoval playing Rosamond, who's one of the pickups that Murray has. Anna Capri plays Maylene Travis, his girlfriend. Uh, The other interesting character in this one really is Michael C. Gwynn playing Clarence McGinty, who's the money man, the accountant for, and maybe part-time manager for Mori. Now, there's, there's some really nicely nuanced character bits in this. And there are also bits of business business. There's the bit where they're dividing up the money after a gig, they get the money off the venue. They put it in envelopes, give everybody their cut, um, which is the payday of the title. It's also the name of one of Murray's albums. And the fact that Murray keeps on top of the financial stuff along with McGinty is kind of cool. He's not just the guy who sits there, gets laid, drinks alcohol, smokes dope and writes country songs. He's also on top of the economics of the business, which is kind of interesting and a nice keen bit of observation there. It's very easy to go the easy route with a character like that and have them oblivious to the financial situation. But Murray is definitely on top of that and I kind of like that as well. Now, Rip Torn's not a particularly good singer. He doesn't have to be for this one. The songs he sings in the movie were written by Sheryl silverstein who used to write some really funny songs i should actually as a, as a post-credit thing at the end of the podcast i'm going to play you a different Sheryl silverstein song that i like there are any number of them and um he writes songs like she's only a country girl and the beautiful thing that silverstein does with them is they're almost touching onto being a satire of country music songs um, they're kind of maudlin. They're simplistic. They're kind of, you know, patronising to women as well. But it's kind. There's a kind of satire in there which comes across to the audience, but doesn't come across to the audience as Murray plays to. And I like that. I'm glad I saw this movie now rather than before because there's so much in this movie that I did pick up on that I wouldn't have picked up on as a younger guy. Um, there are also a whole bunch of people who are name-checked in the movie, a whole bunch of country stars, Buck Owens, Johnny Cash, you get the Grand Old Opry in there, and you get some complicated women as well. Maylene's the most interesting of the female characters, played by Anna Capri. Um, the fact that she knows that Murray is no good for her and that there's no future for her in the relationship... And yet she's kind of addicted to the life and the lifestyle. She knows he's sleeping around behind her back. She gets some pretty strong evidence of that uh, at one stage in the movie. But she hasn't got the ability to let go. And there's a vulnerability and a toughness that Annika Pre puts into that role, which I really like. It's in the writing. But I think that she's one of those good-looking blonde women who was in TV and movies in the 60s and 70s who wasn't given the opportunity to get the roles that would have shown that she's got the chops to do her job. There are so many women in Hollywood back in the day who you see them do one really good role and you think, why the fuck didn't they do more of them? And unfortunately, things like Me Too are now telling us the reasons why a lot of these women didn't get those opportunities. Either they didn't put out, or they didn't want to be in the kind of life where you have to put out to do the things you want to do. The the other main woman in there is kind of interesting. She works at a five and dime store. She goes to the party that the band has after the show in their motel. um, And she hooks up with one of the guys and then ends up hooking up with Murray. And um, she very quickly realises that riding in the backseat of a Cadillac on the cowskin seat covers with a total maniac, egomaniac, um, selfish bastard, drunk, who will throw anyone under the bus to make his own life easier? And we get some evidence of that further down the line, where there's a call back to the first night of the 36 hours we see in the life of Murray Dan, where um he picks up a girl after a gig who went there with her boss and her boss is kind of pissed off that she went off with Murray Dan rather than sleeping with him. There's a callback to that which kind of changes the trajectory of things and makes it really really um, difficult for a number of the characters after a certain incident outside a restaurant. We also get some really interesting stuff with the local DJ who knows that he's got a symbiotic relationship with people like Murray Dan. They come through town, they sign a few albums, they talk on the radio, and the DJ knows that the music artist needs him, the music artist knows the DJ needs them, and there's a little bit of a kind of power play conducted mostly on the air. There's a little bit off the air between those characters where they kind of try to angle what they need from each other, while neither of them likes the other person. So there is some really nice writing and acting in this one from even some of the minor characters. There's a kind of... The tensions between characters is really clear in this movie without it being over-the-top and theatrical. We also see Murray go back to the farm where his mother lives and his mother's addicted to um, probably speed and he's probably the person who addicted her to those drugs and she's kind of been letting things go. The house is a mess. The dog hasn't been fed and Murray goes down there with a couple of his friends to do a bit of um, grouse shooting and they do that and there's some really nice kind of bucolic scenes in the movie where you've got the big trees hung with Spanish moss and you've got the guys with the hunting dogs going out there and hunting for quail or grouse or whatever it is and it's, it kind of shows us a lifestyle that's very alien to the lifestyle most of us live. And yet, um, is fascinating as well. He's kind of a person who does random things and decides he's going to go and visit his mother. So they drive out there and uh, he stays there a little while, gives her some money, gives her a lot of pills He's got a um, nice little pharmacy inside his guitar case. And, yeah, it's... um, Murray Dan's family dynamics are really, really fucked up. We also get some other indications that he left home early in life and went north and um, stayed in some northern states for a while before coming back down south and becoming a country music singer. So there's a little kind of indications and little bits and pieces of business where we get a picture of a very complex character, and Rip Torn plays it incredibly well. The mania of the character, the selfishness, the slyness, the keen, uneducated intelligence of the man is really one that, having known a few people in my day, not entirely dissimilar from someone like Murray Dan, who may well have. Um, manic depression or bipolar or something like that we're not too sure or he may just be fucking himself up with drugs it's a little hard to tell but as the 36 hours we see progresses we know that he hasn't got much sleep we know that um, there are some changes in his life we know that he is totally going off the rails in various ways and we see that in the way he treats maline who gets a really good exit from the movie. She's one of the characters where the exit, the last couple of words she says, tells us a hell of a lot about the character and really tells us kind of in a subtext that she's a person who survives and of all the people in the movie, with one or two possible exceptions, she's going to be okay. Not necessarily living the best life she could, but she's got the toughness of a survivor. And we see that in the way that she is with Murray, and we see the way that she is when she leaves the movie. This movie has a real anarchic energy to it. It's um, beautifully shot. I really should name check the director because he did a lot of TV stuff, but he really didn't do too much cinematic after This it was Daryl Duke. And just going into IMDb, we can see a couple of other things he did. Um, he did The Silent Partner, that really good movie with Elliot Gould and Christopher Plummer in it. Did a lot of episodic TV. He did a, um, TV, the TV series The Thorn Birds, based on the really bad Colin McCulloch novel. Let's see, The Silent Partner. Um, let's have a look. Did some episodes of Harry O, the really cool detective series with David Janssen. I really should kind of find some copies, some episodes of Harry O because I really do like that series. Um, he did Ghost Story, the TV series, the one Sebastian Cabot did the hosting bit on. So for the most part, he worked through television and then in 1973 comes up with this one-off brilliant piece of cinema. Um, the only movie I can really compare it to with any kind of accuracy. I think these would make a fantastic double feature. If these two movies were running the cinema together anywhere, I would go and see it and I'd take along a few friends. Payday would be the perfect companion movie to A Face in the Crowd, the movie with Andy Griffith and Patricia Neal in it. I think those two would really blow the socks off an audience. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, Daryl Duke also directed an episode of Banachek. The... George Papad TV series, which is a much better TV series than The A-Team. And I will fight anybody that says otherwise. I could talk a lot more about Payday, but I don't want to do the spoilers for it, because I think there are things that you've got to naturally discover. And I think that there is a really nice structure to the script of this one, too. I think that it all works. I think that the characters are just so well designed. And it talks to a lot of concerns that people have these days, too, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I believe that the character Murray Dan, people say, was based on Hank Williams, though whether that's true or not is up for debate. I think it may be a portmanteau of every toxic, wandering minstrel there has been since time immemorial. The interesting thing, too, from uh, my viewpoint, is that the movie gives us um, a southern world and a um, kind of, picaresque view of life in the south south of the US which is purely white and that's kind of interesting I don't think they wanted to bring the complexities of race into the story because it's not that kind of story but there's a kind of um, monoculture about this movie as well which makes it kind of interesting too and it gives us a view of western civilization i suppose in a time before we were globally interconnected people do want their local stars in this movie they do want to see the country and western guy coming through town they want to everything that impinged on people was a lot more localized than it is now and now it's global and you can see every good thing that happened in the world you see every bad thing that happened in the world in this one though we've got a microcosm we've got a certain time a certain place and a madman ripping the shit out of it as he drives through it, entertains some people and abuses others. Every culture creates its own monsters. And the south of the 20th century created the monster of Mori Dan. He's what happens when celebrity and privilege go unchecked. You should really see this one because it's, um, it's not particularly hard to find, but... It's one of those ones where it gets lost amid All the other movies from the 1970s that are really good. There's just so much out there at the moment, and there's so much that people are writing and talking about that you can miss a hidden gem like this one. And for me, I did. I I was aware of it, but I didn't watch it until right now. And um, that's something I've got to look into in future. I've got to maybe sit down and get a cup of coffee and play some music and make a list of all the movies that I've been meaning to watch that I haven't because I'm missing out. I mean, or maybe I'm just spacing them out. Maybe I'm kind of, I've got all these movies that I wanna see and I hear great things about and I haven't watched yet. And maybe I'm just kind of rationing them out so that I've always got that kind of movie waiting for me sometime in my immediate future. Being a movie buff is just such fun sometimes. And you find movies like Payday, and you enjoy them, and you think about them for days afterwards. It's really a joy to do this stuff, to, to podcast, and to talk about the movies, and to enjoy them. So, going to end it there for Payday. Um, so, thank you for listening. As always, thank you to the Patreon subscribers, of whom I would like more because there are some movies I want to buy that I can't afford right now. So dig into your pockets, throw me a couple of bucks a month, and I'll be able to find some really interesting things. I want to do more Criterion Edition movies, for instance, and I'm having a little trouble accessing a couple of those. So if you could help out, that'd be great. Um, In the meantime, watch good movies, watch bad movies, watch any kind of movie you like. And if there's something really interesting that you think I might want to watch, let me know. I'm freely available on social media. If you can even tweet me on Twitter at, at Terry Frost or lowercase, and you'll find me there. So uh, look, look after yourselves. I know it's getting cold up north, I know it's getting hot down here. Um, Darwin, my f- second favourite town in Australia, has just had the wet season hit with tremendous force. Not Cyclone Tracy force, but it's just got its first. Rain of the Wet Season, so they're all celebrating up there. Um, And I'll be back soon with another episode. I've got the next one lined up, and I'm going to be doing two really big movies, one of which is As Long As Fuck, and the other which is the movie by The Singer I played earlier in this particular podcast. So I'm going to play the credits, as always, to honour the Patreon supporters. Again, Rich Chamberlain is Morgul the Friendly Drob. He is not on the um, recording I've got of the credits for the podcast yet because I've been incredibly slack. But after that, I will play a Sean Silverstein song that I like. So take care of yourselves. I'll be back really soon. And again, thanks for listening. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema podcast and Martian Driving podcast done in a style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Armin our Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia our Casting Director, Chris our Camera Operator, Christopher our Gaffer, Miss Jane our Wardrobe Mistress, Tansy, our foley artist Alyssa, our location scout Mark, our second unit director Paul, our special makeup effects director Tammy, the donut wrangler Tim, our New York unit director Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor Uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects Dylan, our goat wrangler Eric, our set security lead Richard H, our set photographer. Mark D, our extra. And David L, our extra. Kerry H, who is the accountant. And our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.
3: Hey. A pad with no heat Up on Sullivan Street The last of the hipsters lay dying Wearing his shade So like no one could tell Like whether or not he was crying All the junkies and loners And coffee shop owners Were all gathered around his bed He took one last puff of some imported stuff And these are the last words he said He said, send my sandals home to mom Hang my t-shirt away Burn my guitar in Washington Square Cause I never learned how to play Give my pad to some needy lad and tell him the rent is all paid. Keep my cash and my stash and my hash, but bury me in my shades. Chorus. Bury me in my shades, Bury me in my shades. Burn my guitar in, in Washington, Washington Square, but bury me in my shades. shades said give my brooklyn chicks away to anyone who needs them give all of my poems away to anyone who read them dig me a grave neath the coffee shop and let a sad folk song be played get everyone high on the Shades, Chorus, bury, bury, me shade, bury, bury me in my shades. bury me in my shades. Burn my guitar in Washington Square, but bury me in my shades. We threw his sandals out in the hall. We left his T-shirt laid. We sold his guitar at the corner bar for someone who knew how to play. We smoked all his stash and spent all his cash and threw all his poems away. And Bob got his records, Ed got his books, and I got the poor beatnik shades. Oh, baby, my shades. shades. Burn my guitar in Washington Square, but, but Mary.